Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse, and I'm getting back into the saddle. It's a pleasure to be back in the United States after returning from Europe. It was a most interesting exercise in illumination and power and access and politics. That's worth a conversation, so this is going to be a commentary in part from my experience of the crowdfunding, my experience of being in Europe, in France in particular, and also just a little bit of commentary about some of the conflicts going on on the social networks, what I've noticed, what I'm witnessing, and uh, just some input regarding the latest climate change treaty uh, decision from the President of the United States. Normally, I don't get into politics, but because this is all about leadership, it's of interest to me. I consider myself a nonpartisan person. I love Democrats. I love Republicans, and I love independents. I really don't care what we call people. I care more about what, how people are thinking and what they're doing with what they're thinking and what they're contributing to the public mind, the individual mind and opportunity. And so I'm just going to comment on it, and you can take it or leave it. I welcome all of you who haven't heard from me in a long time. It's great to be back. And I'm calling in anybody that wants to volunteer to be of support to its rainmaking time. Uh, we did not have enough support before. It's one of the reasons I stopped doing it. It was just too much work. And there's hundreds and millions of competing voices out there. And to do it without volunteers is just too difficult. Uh, I don't need to be heard that badly. <laughs> Although I enjoy being heard and I enjoy contributing mostly. Well, first I want to say that when I first did the crowdfunding, I knew that it was on very short notice. And with the crowdfunding, you need months of preparations so that everybody you know is contacting people in their network of people and you can have a very collective, successful crowdfunding experience. So it was on short notice. I decided to do it anyway to raise money and to help raise money. So I, I, once again, I didn't have to fund everything. And uh, we didn't do that well on it. It's, uh, I think we raised just under $1,000, uh, not much compared to what the actual trip to Europe costs. I don't even want to discuss how much it costs. But let's just say it was very, very, very expensive. I went uh, not just to Europe to interview Marine Le Pen, who I was interested in interviewing because I think there's a lot of things that have not have never surfaced in conversation with populist movers and shakers and influencers and people that have people's attention from different parts of the world, not only in their own country. I didn't have a commitment from her or her team to do the interview. And frankly, there were a few reasons I went. One is I wanted to be there on election day to just get a feel for what was going on. I wanted to talk to people and see how they felt where they were at firsthand without cameras, without recording devices or anything, just dialoguing. I stayed at a lovely hotel in Paris and that hotel became my kind of womb in France. And I'm so glad I was there. I'm not going to even say where I was because I want to go back there without any uh, undue interference. <laughs> and um, so the first thing I want to say is I knew that um, 
it was not going to be possible to get an interview with Macron just the way I knew over a year ago it wasn't going to be possible to get an interview with Hillary Clinton. Not that I didn't want to talk to either one of them, but I knew I did I knew it was not proper to spend a lot of time, energy, and money on it because it would be so controlled. Uh, on the U.S. side, it would be so controlled. And they would look and see, well, how big is your network? And if you don't have at least 100,000 people listening to you, they probably didn't want to do it. What people don't understand is that you can take a dynamically wonderful interview. You can not only put it online, but you can also get it up on satellite and on fiber. You can stream it on different networks. And you can have other stations around the world, both radio and television, pull it down. So I wasn't necessarily counting on more of the same audience after a few years with its rainmaking time. I was counting on actually... Uh, much bigger financial commitments and getting to larger audiences. But anyway, I went, I was detached about whether I could get the interview or not. I was intent on establishing the groundwork, the necessary footwork and energetic commitment and network of commitments to get in front of people in France so that they have a real sense of who I am as a human being, who I am energetically, ask me whatever they wanted, establish a condition of trust. And I think when you're dealing with any type of relationships, not only local, national, but international, very important to get in front of people. I think, thank God for Skype and other types of video networks, but I think you really, you really need to get in front of people and their influencers for them to uh, scope you out and have a good sense of you. There are things that are picked up in the personal realm that just aren't picked up on the phone, not necessarily always picked up on audio. And so I went as a commitment to establish a condition of trust and to network and to establish a potential for that interview, not necessarily before the election because we knew it wasn't going to happen then, but afterward. And what my preference was and the way it really happened were quite different. So that's number one. I mean, what I had to do to establish the groundwork was very, very different. That's often very, very common because the map is not the terrain. And, you know, you can look all day long what it's like to go into a certain terrain on a map. And boy, is it different when you get to the terrain. I needed to be on the terrain, in the terrain, with the people. And I spent, I think, 10 days, nine or 10 days in Paris and really networked or talked to a lot of people from all over the world. It was great. I met fantastic people there from Brazil, from Canada, from Australia, from all over England and talked to people in very, very different fields, including some people that were there even in the intelligence field. <laughs> oh, how did that happen? I don't know. I had a few different channels working and I never depended on one channel uh, or one person or one avenue to open up uh, a potential to meet the right people. Of course, each channel thought they were my only hope. <laughs> they don't know me. <laughs> and what that really means is that I never count on one egg in a basket. I have many eggs going, many things on the fire, and I never depend on one egg. But I had an introduction to a man. I don't want to say much about him or what he did. And I just want to share something about believing too much in the access we have. I was introduced by somebody who this man in Paris was a client of this person who introduced me to him. 
And I had written a letter and I, I gave a list of the remarkable interviews that were done that I felt were remarkable interviews, the best that I could find, really, the most interesting as well. And I find every interview interesting, but I found I really provided the most really a real good sense of the depth and the breadth of my work. And I had asked the gentleman overseas before I even got there if Marine Le Pen had understood English and never got an answer, but was asked question after question after question uh, to the point of after you've provided all this information, it just seemed overkill when I said I was coming to Paris. There was no interest to meet me. There was no commitment to meet me. There was the person said he could help me. And that's where sometimes when you don't know people, you really have to be mindful because subterfuge and interference can work by somebody tying up your focus and attention who really has no interest in making something happen or who's so detached from the situation that it's so impersonal. They really don't care about you or what you're doing. There's some other motive. You can't necessarily figure it out. But this gentleman refused to answer my questions before I got to Paris and then tried to talk me out of going to Paris, even though he said he had contacts and to the movement. But he said there's no guarantees that I would get the interview and I should stay home. <laughs> he told that to the wrong person. Anyway, I went to Paris and decided not to contact him since he was trying to convince me not to go and, and all of that. And a couple of, like a day after I got there on my birthday on May 8th, I get an email from him. Do I still want to interview her? I said, yes, I do. And I happen to be in Paris. No interest in my phone number, no interest in talking to me, no interest in having coffee with me, no interest in five minutes of even saying hello, welcome to Paris. Nothing, zero, zip. This is someone who's trying to help me, supposedly. But asking me then, uh, he says he's going to talk to his contact, who apparently was way up high as one of the her advisors. I won't even get into this, but anyway. And a couple of days go by, and I'm working on the other things I'm working on in Paris. I'm working on studio. Where am I going to shoot broadcasting when I'm in Paris? Who do I like? What teams do I want to work with? What camera people do I want to work with? Do I want to go up on fiber or fiber and satellite? I'm, you know, There's other things going on besides this, and I'm just letting it flow. Long story short, he asked me to provide the letter that I sent overseas directly to Marine Le Pen. Wants me to send it in an email and he'll send it to his contacts, but doesn't tell me who they are. <laughs> well, I believe in life, everybody. You have to trust your gut instinct and you have to trust your intuition and that whatever your intuition and your gut instinct tells you, you should probably follow it. Now, not everybody's gut instinct and intuition is highly honed because we're dumbed down a lot with bad food, water, air, stress, a lot of misinformation, confusion, upset, depression, a lot of things which hold down our acute sense of whether we should proceed with something or not. But anyway, in a very nice diplomatic letter, I let the gentleman know that I appreciate what he's asking. I do understand why, but that in essence, I can't release that, that there, it was purposely not sent via email and it was sent directly so that it would get to her. Now, whether it did or not, that's a different issue. Uh, my sense is it didn't get to her because I think when somebody sends an overseas letter, I think that that's a different level of commitment than an email and says they would come over and that they're willing to meet with her for 15 minutes uh, for the person to get a feel if they'd like to do an on-camera interview. 
I gave my backup, you know, all of my backup information and all the interviews I've done with NASA, with remote viewers, with heads of industry of all kinds, including some entertainment interviews. Never got an answer, never got a response, never even got the courtesy of we've evaluated it, but no thank you, or it's not a good time. Absolutely zip zilch. I just want to say I know that there are people that are deluged with letters, but I think it's a good policy if somebody says an overseas document, which is different than just a standard letter, and it's a document that rushes something to somebody, I think that it should probably be given a priority different than a standard email. And I always think it's a nice thing to do is to, is to respond to somebody or we don't know yet or not now, anything, but that didn't happen. So I had in a nice way said to this gentleman in writing that I was not prepared to do that. Please don't be offended. And that I wanted that as a separate channel and that I'm happy to give whatever information, get on the phone, if necessary, go to another part of Europe to meet the person who is connected with her. I was totally open, but I was not open to that. Anyway, long short, just a few more days go by, and finally I get another person's email. He gives me the name of an email of the person who is supposedly is advising her. And I write the letter, I explain what, why I'm there. I'm actually in Paris, so it's like I'm there in the flesh. It's not like a phone call. It's not an email. It's not a maybe if. I write the letter, and... I send it off and something like three or four minutes later says to me, you better go check that letter. <laughs> and I do. And oh my God, it says, and I wrote, dear monsieur blank, right? Dear monsieur, that which is mister. It's the formal for mister in, in France, in French. Well, the autocorrect on my computer changed it to monster. <laughs> So here I am, I'm trying to do everything with diplomacy and formal and everything, and the darn computer changed my dear monsieur to dear monster. I was so embarrassed. I was so humiliated. I wrote that guy back, and I apologized so profusely <laughs> and explained to him what happened. And I said, you know, and not knowing what he would think at this point, I'm an American, I'm a woman, I'm, he probably thinks I'm just a journalist, I'm there in Paris, and oh my God, what a disaster. So I write the guy back who referred me to him and I explained what happened. He was like, oh my God, I haven't heard from the guy either. You may have ruined the whole thing. And he was all skeptical. And I said, if I ruined it because of an autocorrect, okay, then this guy is not who I'm supposed to meet, okay? Because things happen. We're living, we're in an automated world now and things do happen. And, you know, you have to be able to go back when you make an error and correct it and get on with it. So it just means it's not the right person. Anyway, uh, the guy doesn't email me back. The guy who I just called monster <laughs> for three, four days go by or three days go by. And the guy who put me in touch with him emails me and says, uh, I don't know why he's not emailing you back or whatever. I'll talk to him. So he, he gets back to me and he says, he says he writes to me that, oh, he did talk to him. Now this guy who's supposedly the advisor won't even pick up the phone and I'm in Paris. Another person who won't pick up the phone. Does it shock you that the first person who wouldn't pick up the phone to me connected me with someone else who wouldn't pick up the phone? That's how crazy this is. And impersonal, okay? 
So he, he writes me back and he says, I talked to the guy and he talked to the group, the movement, and the movement said, absolutely not. <laughs> they won't do an interview with you. Like they've done their due diligence on you and it's not going to happen. I was like, what? What due diligence? What due diligence could they possibly do on me that would yield to that result? Because I'm a person who talks to everybody from every walk of life, whether I like some of what they say, I dislike what they say, I agree with what they say, I don't agree with what they say. I was shocked. So I wrote the guy back and I thanked him for trying to put me in touch with somebody or putting me in touch with somebody and thanked him for his focus and attention. But I also said to him that I do not agree that the movement did their due diligence on me. That in fact, if they did their due diligence on me with the evidence I provided, they'll know I've talked to people from every walk of life, industry, and area. And that I am to be trusted in terms of having a conversation. And that I have a commitment to be there and to do this. And it's too bad that nobody was willing to talk with me by phone or meet with me about anything once I landed in the country, even for five minutes, not even a phone call. I said that I graded the people who did their due diligence in F, and I graded the people who did their gatekeeping in A+. Because <laughs> all this was, was a gatekeeping effort. Who loses in this? Who loses in this are people that care, who want to be more informed, who want more expansive dialogue, who are very interested in leadership and aren't simpletons. That's who lost. What the person I wrote also didn't know is that Kim Greenhouse never gives up on anything she commits to. It may not happen when I think it's going to happen, but I never give up. And so when someone tells me, go home, it's over, it'll never happen, I just take it with a grain of salt. I mean, I get that. It's kind of like a doctor saying, you have six months to live. I mean, you just don't take that kind of information to heart. So I let the universe and God decide what's going to be. Sometimes it's a yes, but not now. Sometimes it's a no. And sometimes it's a no, but not now. I don't know if I said that right, but I think you get what I mean. And then I went down to Provence. I was on call for yet another meeting. I won't give more detail because that meeting is still cooking. One of the things that kept happening, not only before I left the United States, but after I left the United States, was that about five or six people that were going to translate for me who were interested fell out of the loop. All of a sudden were not interested or just things were not happening with a translator. And so I wanted to have a translator who would represent me who was nonpartisan, who was open to representing me in the conversation and, uh, you know, being honorable about that. Uh, that means with anecdotes, uh, metaphors, analogies, stories, whatever it is I was going to convey to communicate. And so finding a translator is a very big deal. If somebody that you are in communication with is, doesn't speak the language that you speak and you don't speak their language well enough to be articulate and intelligible. And it turned out that one of the things I prayed about was to have find a translator in France that I felt comfortable with, that I trusted, and I did. And I'm very glad about that. So what I wanna say is I 
took a train to the south of France, to Aix-en-Provence. It's beautiful. I got a chance to meet incredible people. I was taken on a tour up into Moustier and really liked Aix-en-Provence. It was, a, it was an unusual, unexpected delight and less stressful than Paris. Uh, obviously. It's like the countryside versus New York. But anyway, I wanted to let you know that it's still in progress. I'm going to be running another GoFundMe campaign at a later time. Please watch for that and participate. If you like my work and you like the kind of interviews and that I've done and you would like to see this happen on camera, please participate. Fund it and get other people to help fund it. The other thing is I'm looking for camera people in different areas of the country and the world who would like to work with me. If any of you are interested, please email me at timing at rainmaking.com and introduce yourself to me, including editors, anybody in research, and people that can assist me with the show. And now I just want to say something very, very briefly about the climate treaty, which is this. I love the earth and this planet so much. I love the mountains and the trees and snow and rain. I love the sun. I love animals. I love our precious and sacred ecosystems. It hurts me so much that they're being decimated by overdrilling and fracking and geoengineering. I feel terrible about the declining bee, bee population I feel terrible about what's happening to our food supply, the complete poisoning of our food supply. I feel so angry about the fact that we can't get GMO food labeled. I'm worried about agriculture, not only for the U.S., but for the other countries. I am totally for the humane treatment of animals if they're going to be eaten from beginning to end. And I love this planet. Because I'm a whole systems thinker, because I've done a ton of research several years on climate and weather, I feel differently about anything political, treaty level wise and legal about what is being proposed to be done with climate, even if many, many nations have joined the treaty in Europe. I'm personally glad it was not signed by the United States this time because I want something written with more teeth in it. And when I say teeth, I mean, after I think I did almost 30 segments on climate and weather, I even got death threats over it. And when you go through something like that, you have a different level of understanding of how political this is and how instinctual this is. You say climate and people feel like if you don't sign on with legal things that you don't love the planet and you don't care. I care as just as much as every environmental activist and advocate in the world. And I will go to bat for the well-being of our planet till the day I'm not here. The planet is sacred to me. And that also means the way it's being treated is sacred to me. And documents that are legal have to contain other truths about what's going on on our planet. What is being permitted to decimate agriculture, plants, animals, oceans, our entire ecosystems that's missing from the treaties and from the diagnosis of what's happening. And this doesn't come lightly, but it infuriates me that we don't have the GMO seed, plants, food, and animals that has been molecularly changed and the decimation of agriculture worldwide 
and the bee populations being threatened, not even part of the climate treaty. That's just given a pass. Or geoengineering, which is dumping down the most toxic things on human and animal and any living populations, whether they're plants, animals, or people. And this was resisted, and this was omitted as part of any treaty. So to me, if you're going to have a treaty, be real. You have to include some of the most virulent, horrendous things that are going on on the planet. You have to acknowledge what's being done that is part of the human fault, if you want to put blame somewhere, that is altering entire ecosystems around the world. I'm not playing with this. And you're either going to put teeth into the treaty and tell it the way it really is, and that also includes any military-level experiments in our oceans, okay, with the, with the green light to blow up 5 million mammals and to test bombs or any type of other virulent weapons in our oceans. It's not okay. It's absolutely not okay. That's where I stand. That's my position on it. I love you. I care about you, your family, and the planet. And nobody will convince me otherwise. This is Kim Greenhouse. Look forward to some interesting commentaries and really, really great interviews upcoming. If you've heard this commentary, what would be great is if you could share it with everybody you know and also send me an email to timing at rainmaking.com and let me know you heard this commentary. Thank you very much. It's Kim Greenhouse from It's Rainmaking Time. Be well.